I'm sure this has happened to you. Has anybody ever told you a story and you're like, there has got to be more to that story? There's got to be something in the background. There's got to be something that I don't know because this story needs more detail. Well, what I'm about to tell you today from God's Word is one of those kinds of stories. It's the story of Jesus who turned water into wine. And I, I'm sure it's not a new, a new uh, story to you. I'm sure you've heard of it. You're probably thinking to yourself, there, there's got to be more to the story than that. In fact, um, we're left wondering why the other gospel writers didn't include this particular incident. Matthew didn't write about it. Mark didn't write about it. Luke didn't write about it. John wrote about it. In fact, it was um, John's opening miracle salvo in his letter, in his gospel. Now, we all know that John himself wrote that if, if all the things that Jesus did were to be recorded, there wouldn't be room in all the books in the world to record them. So the disciples themselves or the gospel writers themselves had to make decisions on what they were going to record as the Holy Spirit led them. And so the early gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, did not include this particular incident. But John did. This is one of these stories that I think required a lot of reflection, a lot of time, a lot of time to think. There must be more to this story. Of course, Jesus could turn water into wine. He's God. It's nothing for him. We, we know that Jesus is the creator. He called the universe into existence from nothing. And many of us are probably thinking, well, how am I, how is this ever going to apply to my life? I'm never going to need H2O to be changed into wine. So, so how is this incident actually going to apply to my life? Well, 40 years ago, I, uh, I waded into this gospel, this particular story, in a junior high class. I told them the story, I taught them the lesson, I taught them that Jesus turned water into wine, real wine, the finest of wine, not grape juice. And then I went home. And then the phone started ringing. I almost was fired from ministry before I even started. Friends, uh, this is not a story about the ills of alcohol, which many people have, have uh, sort of reduced it to. Let's, let's tell the story and then let's take a, a big leap off and let's talk about the dangers of alcohol. There's plenty of places in the scripture that talk about that in terms of health and relationships and all of that. That's not what this is about at all. So many miracles, how do you decide? Why was this story even included? John's mission in writing his gospel 
And let's not forget that this is, this is the same theme for everything we're teaching. John's mission was that we might believe, the reader might believe, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that by believing, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have, what? Life in his name. If you don't bring that into this, it will be a surface story for you of the great miracles that Jesus is able to perform, but it won't penetrate your life. It won't make a difference in your life because this story is included as the, John calls it, the first sign of seven signs. What signs? Signs that Jesus is Messiah, that Messiah is Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, and that by believing that, you might have life in his name. That has to be embedded in this story. When we ask the question, why is this story included? We have to answer that question. What does this teach us about Jesus as Messiah that we might have life in his name? Because at the end of the story, it tells us there that he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. That tells us the purpose right there. Why are, we, why are we even spending time here? Because Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. That's our goal for today. That you might see the revelation of Jesus' glory and that you might put your faith in him. Our Father, as we now turn our attention to your word to us today. I pray that you might open up our hearts to receive what you have for us. This most important event that teaches us who Jesus really is and why we need him. And I pray, Lord, today that that might, that that reality, that as you once again, all, all over again, reveal the glory of Christ to us and through your word, that we might put our faith in Jesus Christ and that we might have life in his name, abundant life, Jesus, in his name, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen, amen. So we know John's mission. This is to tell us not what Jesus necessarily can do, but who Jesus is. And this is going to be important for us, our whole lives. Not what Jesus necessarily does, but who Jesus is. And so this is a sort of culmination of 60 years of reflection of John. Once again, the wow of this event, the aha of the event. And he, he, ca he captured it. He, he got it. He understands it. Of course, the Holy Spirit led him here. It, it teaches us uniquely how Christ is full of grace and truth. Hey, what we see here. 
Now, maybe you don't know it. It says here this is a sign. This is a sign. What is a sign? A sign in the Bible is something hidden that is disclosed. It's different from a miracle. A miracle is a demonstration of divine power. But a sign, in the, in the miracle, a sign uh, in, in, the, in the disclosing of the divine power, something that was formerly hidden is revealed. That's what a sign is. John has seven of them. In fact, the structure of his gospel is sort of structured around these seven signs. But this, this sign is to show us something that was hidden that is now disclosed because of what Jesus did. Okay, so that's what we have here. So we have both a miracle being performed, but a sign to us of who Jesus is. It was just hidden and now disclosed. So I want to um, sort of pick out of here three life lessons based on the purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Can I, can I get agreement here that weddings are big deals? Like this is a wedding. Jesus goes to a wedding. Weddings are big deals. I'm, I'm looking down here at the Nevilles and uh, the pending wedding that's coming up. I don't have to tell you that weddings are a big deal. Weddings are a big deal. We all, uh, aside from other pastors who are older than me or some uh, justice of the peace who might be here or whatever, I, I think I've probably been to more weddings than anybody else in the room. And I know what I'm talking about. Weddings are a big, big deal. For the people who are, especially the family that's throwing the wedding or putting on the wedding, and whether it's the bride's side or the groom's side, it's a big deal. Bride's side is a bigger deal, usually. And in my pre-marriage lessons, I'm like, look at, to the guy, I'm like, just shut up and do what you're told, and you might get through this thing unscathed. Because this is about the girl you're gonna marry and her mother, primarily, all right? So those two players are really all that matters. And if you get in their way, you're gonna get scratched. So just, just stay out of their way. And there's always tension around a marriage. There's always lots of, there's tension. And mother, daughter, bride, mother, mother wanting to throw the wedding she never had. And it just, it's just, I, I tell the poor little girl who's sitting in front of me, look, it's going to be rough for you, okay? These next couple of months are going to be very, very rough, but just go with your mother. <laughs> you know, he should shut up. You should just go with your mother, and the two of you will have a great honeymoon. Just forget about the wedding and just move on to what really matters. Get on to the honeymoon, then you'll be fine, right? So this is a big deal, this wedding. And it's unimaginably a big deal for Middle Eastern people, okay? Our weddings are nothing compared, even today, if you, uh, Lynn and I were over in Turkey one time, and, and we were staying at this um, sort of bed and breakfast place, and they were having a wedding in the village. I'd never seen anything like it. We were invited, everybody was invited, this big wedding going on all night long, and it just kept going on and on. Well, weddings in the, in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, they could go on for a week or more. You were settling in there for like, this is a big deal, a wedding was a big deal. And there's a reason why it's a big deal. 
It's still a really big deal for me. I never take weddings for granted. I, I never get used to a wedding I, uh, in the sense of, of uh, it doesn't mean anything or it's no, it, for, for me, it's still a big deal. And I'm going to explain this as we move through because weddings are something about God, something big about God, something important about God. And every wedding, even today in the ceremonies, we dramatize important things about God. So, so this was a big deal and uniquely a big deal, and it was becoming a tragic fail. It, it was in, in, in the process of being a disaster. I'm going to read the text. Let's look at it. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. In Galilee, Cana is about seven kilometers north of Nazareth, which gives you some sort of idea of who the guests, why the guests were invited that were invited. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, the NIV totally misses the point here when it says, dear woman, because that's not what he said. Jesus just said, woman... Why do you involve me? In other words, he, a better translation, woman, this has nothing to do with me. My time, or my hour, more literal, has not yet come. Like, circle verse 4 because it's everything in this text that will help you understand what's going on. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By the way, that's a great way to approach Jesus, beloved. Do whatever he tells you. That's another underlying verse. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. This is another circle verse. This tells us something very important. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom, important part of the text, aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, John writes, his editorial comment, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the word of God. So we've got a problem on our hands. The wine is run out. We have no idea where in the time frame this was. But this wedding could have lasted up to a week. And a wedding is supposed to be filled with joy. And having all of the things that you expected to have at a ceremony and celebration of a wedding feast and festival is what makes joy happen. And the wine had run out. 
Now, the groom in the Middle East was responsible for providing the wine. And the guests were responsible to bring significant gifts. This still happens today. If I'm not getting my good meal, I'm not given my gift. That's the exchange at a wedding. Invitation. Now the, I, know, I know COVID has shortened down these weddings as little things, you know, and all that. that I, I hope we bounce back because, because if you want my gift, you better give me a decent meal. That's the way it was here at these weddings. In fact, so dramatic is this that, that if the groom didn't show up with a satisfying amount of wine at the uh, ceremony, there could be legal ramifications. We brought our, good, our best gift. You give us nothing. Especially the bright side. It could be a huge problem here. So uh, Mary somehow, whether Mary's the wedding planner, uh, Jesus' mother is wedding planner, or she's a, a, a close relative, she was clearly uh, part of some sort of group of people responsible for making sure this wedding was going well. And um, some have even suggested that this must, might have been a family wedding of, of Mary and Jesus. That, and some have even gone so far as to suggest that this was John's wedding himself. That's why he included this. That his mother, Salome, was in fact... Mary's sister, and John is Jesus' cousin, and that's why the family is really kind of responsible for this. We, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But it is interesting to consider. So Mary thinks of one person who can fix the problem. Jesus. The problem, they have no wine. Jesus' response to her is, without saying it, these people have more problem than just not having enough wine. Okay? You're going to see this unfold. He doesn't say that outward, but he basically then says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? You're, you're coming and asking me to sort of be a wedding fixer. You're expecting me to, to use the abilities that you know I have to be kind of like a, a miracle dispenser at your bidding. So he says to her, not harshly, but not warmly, okay? Okay? Because the, he, he says to her, woman, there are other things he could have said. He could have said mother, for instance. Because the relationship that Jesus had with Mary was as her son. Mary is her, his mother. And up until this point, listen, up until this point, Jesus had taken on the responsibilities of being family provider. 
we have to assume Joseph has died. He's off the scene. Jesus, as the oldest child, male child, is responsible to provide for his mother and his family. And he did. That's why he was a stonemason, carpenter, uh, a construction guy. He says to her, what does this have to do with me? And then he quickly says, my hour has not yet come. There's a transition in relationship taking place between Jesus and his mother. And she needed to know it right now. Mother changes to woman because from this point forward, his other brothers are going to have to provide while he goes on mission. The hour has not yet come that he's referring to is the hour of his being revealed as the savior of the world. And he's saying to her, it's not yet the time for that. Regardless of her feelings, regardless of their familial relationship, and you're not surprised to hear this, Jesus was prioritizing the mission of his father. You will find out later on in the Gospels where one of his disciples came to him and said, your mother and your brothers, your family are, are waiting for you. He said, who are, who are my mother? Who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? These who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters. Everything is changing. And it's an important message to all of us that you don't have to be part of Jesus' actual family to be in on Jesus. The family of Jesus are those who receive him, who respond to him, who obey him. That's who is his family. Feelings, emotions, wants, desires don't change Jesus' mission. The will of God always supersedes emotions, feelings, desires, human things we need or think we need. I'm going to get to the first point in a moment. Don't, don't panic. The guys up there waiting to press the button are like, when? We are living in a moment, and this is a, this is a, a key thing for us to learn right now about what happened right here. We are living in a moment where churches, and I'm just going to talk churches now, are changing the will of God based on their feelings, their emotions, their desires, their wants, their sense of evident need. And I, we, we need to know, and I want you to know, and this wedding tells us clearly that Jesus will never bend the will of God to fit the story. The story has to fit the will of God. And Jesus was telling his mother in no uncertain terms, 
I get it. Our families in a disastrous moment. I get it. But you need to know that I will not help out here in this, that this human problem unless it fits in with the will of God. And I think he was staring at the ceremonial purification water pots while he was thinking about this for a moment. And he decided as he submitted himself to the Father in heaven that this was a good time to reveal his glory. There was enough things happening here that it would be in the will of God to both solve this problem and reveal his glory. So, what jumps out at me here is this about Jesus. We need to learn the first life lesson is this. The will of God and the work of God are never at odds. And certainly never with the word of God. And so Jesus here declares his authority over the situation based on the will of God. And obedience to the will of God. Woman... The will of God must come first. And it's quite regular that the will of God is a solution to our concern here in our life. But not always. But in this case, Jesus sees these water pots standing nearby. And um, you, you need to know that these, these water pots, they, they held about 20 to 30 gallons of water each. It was six of them. If you were coming to the wedding, you had to be ceremonially clean as a good Jew. Ritual purification. Your feet got dirty and dusty from walking around. They had to be cleaned. But your hands had to be clean. Remember the Pharisees jumped all over the disciples because they were eating without going through the purification of their hands. And Jesus was making the point, I'm here. And I'm telling you why he said that, because what he did right here at the wedding. Okay, the purification, so that they would have to do, go through a ceremony of, of, of having the water poured over their hands and the water would have to run over their hands and down and drip off their elbow. And then they would have to turn their hand this way and have the water poured from the wrist and just poured off their hands and and drip off their hands, and they would have to take their fists and grind their fists into each of the palms of their hands and into this palm of their hand before they could eat anything. That they might be reminded every time they came to a situation like this that they were impure and they needed to, to recognize that and respect that before God. Well, now, standing at the wedding is the pure one. Jesus the Christ, who John had just said days before, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, these purification jugs had, had become, as religious ceremony and religious rituals always do, just a, 
a, an external act that was, was, had become like a superstition. It didn't mean anything to their hearts. And they, they'd become to the point where they think, well, we can clean ourselves by pouring some water on our feet and on our hands and we're clean. And, and, and it, it had just become something they just do. We're about to be schooled, they're about to be schooled by Jesus on the inadequacies of religion that has mostly become a ritual and a ceremony and just a habit, a a mechanical act, a repetition, choreographed, that gives some sort of idea that you can take care of deeply wounded problems of the heart and the soul, deep sickness by just pouring some water on your hands. Jesus is about to to turn that entirely upside down. Does anybody here think, does anybody in this room think that you can wash a bitter heart off with some water on your hands? They increasingly did. It's the problem of habitual ceremony, of having a religious system that has rituals and costumes and Things you do repeated over and over again, the same thing. You start to lose touch with what the deeper meaning and the reality of this all is representing. And you start to depend upon the external act as some sort sort of good luck rabbit's foot. I'm good with God because I went through the motions. We're good with God at this ceremony because you see those water pots Oh yeah, we, we dipped our hands in those water pots. We're good with God. While they're hating the person who's sitting beside them, looking at the wedding guest situation, looking at the card there with somebody's name. I, I have to sit beside them. I'm not sitting beside them. Wait a second, didn't you wash your hands in that pot? Yeah, it meant nothing. When you're out of wine, six purification water pots can't help. Religious... Rituals weren't taking care of the joyless wedding that we had here. How dead and unhelpful the religious replacements for God had become. The great need of the moment wasn't clean feet and clean hands. It was clean hearts. And who's going to take care of that? So Jesus says to the guys, fill up those water pots those ceremonial purification water pots with water that can't clean a heart. The miracle of the moment wasn't Jesus taking water, turning water into wine. I mean, that's child's play for God. That's baby finger stuff. The miracle was the sign and the symbol of what he did. What's really going to purify you people is not water cleaning your feet and your hands. It's the color red filled to the brim. Six pots, 180 gallons. They could never drink all of that, ever. Well, maybe ever, but certainly not at one wedding. It's an abundance of the symbol of Jesus' blood. What is it that we celebrate at communion? Wine and bread. 
it, the purification necessary is not water. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that I have come as the Lamb of God to provide. This is why there's more to the story. 60 years of reflection, John writes this. The celebration, the bringer of wine, the bringer of joy, instantly overcomes, by the way, the time that's required of fermentation. That's, you know, down through the ages, there have been, like I said, oh, that wasn't wine, that was, just, that was just juice. Jesus wouldn't drink wine, he'd only drink juice. This was, according to the wedding uh, usher, whoever he was, the finest wine ever that's what this was at the wedding at a wedding ceremony that is the celebration of God's good creation two people coming together forming a new family going to be fruitful and multiply that's what this wedding is all about the gift of generational fruitfulness the joy of covenant with God as marriage represents the relationship of God and his people. Symbolized now by the wine in these water pots, the new covenant, overflowing, abundant forgiveness through his blood. All of this was placed before them as a visual, John says, a sign, the sign. This is the Messiah. Jesus is his name the bringer of experiencing abundant life. The cold, shameful, lifeless, limited, empty, religious misrepresentation of joyless ritual sitting there represented by those pots is being replaced by the abundance and fullness and overflowing reality of a joy-filled relationship with the living God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This wedding had gone from a colossal collapse to an epic reveal. One big object lesson on the better bridegroom. The best bridegroom. Jesus is better. It's at this point, so that I didn't mention what the second point is. Sorry, guys. Be careful that religious things haven't become replacements for the real thing, Jesus Christ. Be careful. Be careful in our lives. I'm going to bring this to application in a few moments for all of us. Because this wedding is entirely applicable to this Sunday, right now, in our lives. And every day from this point forward. The attention now finally turns to the bridegroom. What does this all mean? You've kept the excellent wine until now. Can, can you, and you imagine? He goes, to the, he goes to the bridegroom, okay? The guy, gets the, the guy gets these pots of new wine. And it says in verse 9, Then he called the bridegroom aside. And he says to him, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. So can you imagine this guy? He's like this. He's listening. I, I sort of, you know what I pictured when I read this? I pictured Daryl. 
I pictured you, Daryl. I pictured you as the bridegroom, all right? Guy shows up and says to you, dude, most people give the best wine at the beginning, but you brought the best, you saved the best wine until the very end. You're like, you're an amazing guy. And I just, I, I pictured Daryl just standing there as Daryl does, like, like when he's sort of taking it all in. He's not saying anything. His eyes aren't moving anywhere. He's just taking it in. I can see this guy like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about, but I know something good has happened, and at this moment, I'm wondering if I should take credit for it, right? I, can you, have you ever been in that spot where some, you know, it's like something good is being credited to you, you have nothing to do with it, but hey, like that happens lots here, because there's so many great uh, people with great giftedness around here are doing things, and they're like standing in front of me saying, like, you did an amazing job. And I'm like, I did nothing. I, I had nothing to do with anything that you actually are excited about, but, but this would be a great moment to take credit for it. We don't, we don't hear how he reacts. But we know what this is all about. We know that the real bridegroom is not this guy in terms of, this guy's just standing in for the real bridegroom of the universe. The, the simple reality is I, the bridegroom has arrived. The bridegroom has arrived at the wedding. And the messianic banquet has begun. L literally the the calling and gathering of God's people who will be with the bridegroom forever. The bride of Christ, the church, is being gathered and the bridegroom has arrived. And throughout all of the scriptures, the, the relationship of God to his people is compared to a wedding, or weddings, more accurately, are symbols of the relationship that God has with his people. Weddings are intentional by God, ceremonially driven by God to symbolize the great relationship that God has with his people. And so this moment, that's why I love weddings, because it's a reminder all the time that, that Jesus has come out of the mess. The wedding guests got the best. They got the best bridegroom, the best wine, the best celebration, the greatest joy. This is a harbinger of things to come. And Jesus says to his disciples later on, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare you a place. And if I go and prepare you a place, I will come back and get you, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a wedding discussion. That's, that's where the Father has, has, has the Son making a, a place ready in his house. And when the place was ready in his house, he would send out his son and say, okay, now it's time to go and get your betrothed. And, and if we know Jesus Christ, we be, we're engaged to him by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're betrothed to Jesus. And every wedding we watch is a, is a demonstration of that where, where the, 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 the bridegroom now goes and gets his bride. Middle Eastern weddings are, are better ceremonially at, at dis displaying this because when it's time, the groom goes and he goes 
gathers his friends and they go through the city streets in this ceremony on their way to the bride's house to get the bride. That's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, I, I, I know you're upset by people who, who your, your loved ones who've, who've fallen asleep, but, but don't you realize that, that, that Jesus is going to come again? He's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep to come and get his bride, to come and get his church. He's going to go with his entourage of those who've gone on before. And the entourage is going to come to get the church, his bride. And, and we're going to be together forever. And the great reunion that we're going to have and the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this is, is being played out for us here in this bridegroom language that's going on. I will bring friends with him to get you. Uh, bring those who've fallen asleep. In Hosea, we read, in that day, the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine in that day. In Amos, it says, the day is coming when the mountains will drip with sweet wine. In Psalm 104, 15, wine that gladdens the heart. All of these are descriptions of that great day of the Lord. John himself writes in John 3, 27, with respect to John, John the uh, uh, Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly because of his voice. John the Baptist had already recognized that Jesus is the bridegroom. And in Matthew 22, it says, go to the highways and byways and invite people to the wedding feast, which is what the church is called to do. And then we're called to say, behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him in Matthew 25. And finally, Revelation 19, 7 and 9, behold let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Someday the Father will say to the Son, go get your bride. Remember I said to you that there's more going on in this story than meets the eye? This story reveals the glory of Jesus to us. When the bridegroom is the host, don't expect to ever be disappointed or ever lacking in abundance. He who believes in me will never thirst, Jesus says. He will supply all the needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He turns a wedding fail into the grand success from unfulfilling and joyless to symbols of exceeding joy. The most outstanding bridegroom steps in to bring great gladness. He is Messiah. Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is Messiah. Let me close with two quick takeaways for you. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? It says they put their faith in him. How should you and I respond to this? When the bridegroom reveals who he is, we are called to put our faith in him. When we recognize him, when he reveals himself and our heart opens to him, we are to put our faith in him. But listen, beloved, beware of the subtle but fatal temptation to attach your faith to the abundance of wine or the joy of the party or the happiness or celebration of the celebration 
the gifts. Beware of the subtle temptation to attach your faith to the gifts. They put their faith in him. Not the overflowing abundance of new wine. Not that the party was great now. Not that the wedding was a success. They put their faith in him alone. Because of who he is. Not because of what he does. Or can do. And why is that important? Because... He doesn't always do what he can do. And you still must trust him. He doesn't always do what you feel like you need. In this case, he did. But he doesn't always. And secondly, this. There are lots of religion, but very little of it has anything to do with God today. If you are not vigilant, your religious schedule, religious things and activities can become like stone purification jars. They aren't about the Lord. They are replacements for the Lord. Now listen to me closely. Our Sunday habits, which are good, coming here, our religious things, which are good, may have little to do with the Lord. They may really be a social habit about and for me, what I can get what I like, what will give me glory. Not much left for God then. And it shows up, beloved, it shows up if we've replaced Jesus when things don't go our way. And we don't get what we want. And then we really have to ask the questions of ourselves. Were we really just worshiping ourselves all the time and thought we were worshiping God? Worshiping Christ. We aren't in good space with God because of our external religious habits or ceremonies. We are in good space with God because of our heart connection to the bridegroom who alone brings us the wine of gladness. Jesus doesn't want you to focus on what he can do. He wants you to set your heart, your mind, your affections, your desires on who he is. That you trust him no matter what he chooses to do. Because your trust is in Jesus, not in the things he can do for you. Our Father and our God, we, we close this morning with an urgent sense of need in our own lives to be certain we are focusing our affections, our desires, our hopes, our joy on who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, we might have life in his name, according to his will, according to his word. Oh, Father, if we are trusting in purification water pots of religious habits, 
I pray that we might refocus our attention on the one who overflowed the pots with the symbol of his precious blood given for us that we might have life and have it more abundantly. I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. The bridegroom is coming again. In the book of Revelation. Why don't we close this in prayer? Why don't we just bow our heads? A moment of reflection, all of us. It says in the scriptures, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. With your eyes closed this morning, are you ready for the bridegroom to come? Are you making yourself ready? Are you here this morning and for the first time you have encountered the truth about Jesus Christ and your situation? And you want to say, Pastor, would you just pray for me because I need the bridegroom in my life. Is there anybody here that would say that this morning? Slip your hand up and then put it down. Anybody? What about you who know him, church? Are you living by faith in him alone? Or are you regularly disappointed with him because you don't get what you want exactly the way you want it? Our Father, this morning, in the quietness of our hearts, as we allow the Holy Spirit to search carefully about the quality of our faith, it is so easy to become a purification water pot, going through the motions, good religious habits but very little of it having anything to do with the Lord. We want you just because we want what you can give to us the way we want it. Lord, you are Messiah. We get life in your name, not in our feelings, in our emotions, in our desires but in your name, according to your will, based on your word at work in our lives. So we recommit ourselves to that mission of faith in you alone, Messiah Jesus, purifier of our souls by the blood of Christ given for us that we might be forgiven in a relationship, God and his people, groom and church bride. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.